It's the Mark Stein Show. And now, here's Mark. Happy Columbus Day to our American listeners. Happy Thanksgiving to our Canadian listeners. In 1957, the Governor General, Vincent Massey, proclaimed this day to be a day of general thanksgiving to Almighty God for the bountiful harvest with which Canada has been blessed. The idea that Canada has been blessed by the Almighty has taken a huge hit since then, according to Prime Minister Blackface Banana Pants. Whatever blessings Canada enjoys have come at the expense of others. In Boston, the mayor has replaced Columbus Day with Indigenous Peoples Day and declared that, quote, observing Indigenous Peoples Day is about replacing the colonial myths passed down from generation to generation with the true history of the land upon which our nation was founded. I don't think true history is anything to do with it, certainly not in Canada, where ever since Justin Trudeau Trudeau managed to kill the nation's sesquicentennial in 2017. The third-rate mammy singer has been determined to make you atone for his sins perpetually. So on the first National Reconciliation Day, or whatever it's called, he goes surfing in blackface. True history has winners and losers. There was no Indian nation for Columbus to conquer, just warring tribes who slaughtered each other on a scale that easily surpassed the best efforts of an Italian Arabiste. They had had the continent for a thousand years and built nothing lasting other than an appetite for environmental destruction. But the white man respected the ferocity of the Indian warrior and so named all his sports teams after the red man, the Washington Redskins, the Atlanta Braves. But that's all heap big no-no now. So the Indians have been banished from their one lane of the great central throughway of American culture and are consigned to the fringes by bleeding-heart progressives, so-called, whose children will never encounter a tomahawk chop outside of racial grievance class. None of the legions of Afghan translators or Haitian refugees come to America because they want to live in a traditional Indian society. They want to live in the nations born in the wake of Columbus's epic world transformational voyages. To turn a man of stature for whom America's national capital and a Canadian province are named into a source of national shame is an act of huge historical vandalism. The point is to destroy and in the void build new myths. But the new myths are insipid and weedy and have no real purchase even on those who profess to subscribe to them. Is there anything more bloody boring in its hectoring uniformity than diversity? It's all bollocks and its promoters know it. You've heard my view many times. Unless you're prepared to surrender everything, surrender nothing. So if you surrender Columbus, you better be prepared to surrender Washington and Lincoln. So on this Columbus Day and Thanksgiving, we will have some words and music appropriate to the occasion on both sides of the border, plus an extended edition of Mark's Mailbox, surveying the scene from China to Denmark to the United States Senate, and a brand new episode of the 100 Years Ago show with a Colombian blockbuster. 
You only live twice, said Ian Fleming. These days, great men die twice. First, when they shuffle off this mortal coil. Second, when their statues are torn down, set alight and tossed in the lake. We are well into the ISIS scorched earth phase of the woke war on statuary, and we have gotten used to a lot of empty plinths as we stroll round town. It's Mark Stein's Statue of the Night. You put me high upon a pedestal So high that I could almost see eternity You needed me We no longer need Christopher Columbus. He had a swell run, but to modify Cole Porter, he is well and truly bounced. In the last year and a half, his monuments have tumbled all over the map, starting with a trio of statues in just 48 hours in Virginia, Minnesota, Massachusetts. These were all relatively recent sculptures. Richmond's dates from 1927, St. Paul's from 1931, and Boston's from 1979. The impetus behind all three came from the Italian-American community, for whom Columbus born in Genoa in 1451, was a way to connect their own more recent arrival in the United States with the fellow who got the whole thing rolling. One notes that when the proposed new statue first came up in Richmond, it was rejected by the city council on the grounds that Columbus was a foreign and B, Catholic. Not enough to save him now. And it rather overlooked how central he was to the United States' nascent identity in the years after the Revolutionary War. His fellow Italian, John Cabot, discovered America on behalf of the British Crown and Henry VII, so he was something of a problematic figure. Columbus, on the other hand, had no such unpleasant associations, which is why his name became a synonym for America itself. Columbia, who for a century or so was a female warrior personification of the United States, as Britannia was for the United Kingdom. That's why we have the District of Columbia and Columbia Pictures and the Columbia Broadcasting System. And what was, for the entire 19th century, the de facto national anthem of the United States? Hail Columbia! Hail Columbia, happy land. 
Colombia was America, America was Colombia. Have you seen her lately? Christopher Columbus, toppled in St. Paul, drowned in Richmond, beheaded in Boston, and gone, gone, gone in Camden, New Jersey, Houston, Texas, New London, Connecticut, Wilmington, Delaware, Detroit, Michigan, St. Louis, Missouri, Sacramento, California, Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, Providence, Rhode Island, Denver, Colorado, on and on and on. When you tear down statues, you're also chopping down the plinth, the foundation on which you, yourself, and your society stand. Mark Stein's Poem of the Week. Well, if this is the last Columbus Day, we surely should have a poem for poor old Columbus, and one that begins other than in 1492. So, a little... Ogden Nash goes a very long way with me, and I would rather have his lovely Shakespeare-derived lyric to Kurt Wilde's Speak Low than his entire uh, catalogue of non-musicalised verse. But he was a uh, hugely popular versifier of the mid-20th century in America. He liked rhymes. He especially liked contrived rhymes of invented words, which is cheating a little bit, uh, especially on the scale Mr. Nash did it. Listen out here for Berdinand. And in order to work up to his rhyme, he issued meter and had lines that were as short or as long as he needed to get up to the rhyme. Um, But given the centrality of uh, Christopher Columbus to the American identity, it was inevitable that one day Ogden Nash would have something to say on the subject. Once upon a time there was an Italian, and some people thought he was a rapscallion. But he wasn't offended, because other people thought he was splendid. And he said the world was round, and everybody made an uncomplimentary sound. But he went and tried to borrow some money from Ferdinand, but Ferdinand said America was a bird in the bush, and he'd rather have a bird in hand. But Columbus's brain was fertile, it wasn't arid, and he remembered that Ferdinand was married. And he thought there is no wife like a misunderstood one, because if her husband thinks something is a terrible idea, she is bound to think it a good one. So he perfumed his handkerchief with bay rum and citronella, and he went to see Isabella. And he looked wonderful, but he had never felt sillier. And she said, I can't place the face, but the aroma is familiar. And Columbus didn't say a word. All he said was, I am Columbus, the 15th century Admiral Byrd. And just as he thought, her disposition was very malleable. And she said, here are my jewels. And she wasn't penurious like Cornelia, the mother of the Gracchi. She wasn't referring to her children. No, she was referring to her jewels, which were very, very valuable. So Columbus said, somebody show me the sunset, and somebody did, and he set sail for it, and he discovered America, and they put him in jail for it, and the fetters gave him welts, and they named America after someone else. So the sad fate of Columbus ought to be pointed out to every child and every voter, because it has a very important moral, which is, don't be a discoverer, be a promoter. Ogden Nash on Christopher Columbus. But on this uh, grim Columbus Day, with America's civilizational inheritance being tossed into the dumpster of history, I don't want to leave it at uh, mere ostentatiously rhymed shtick. 
If you saw me with Nigel Farage, Louise Arbour and Simon Sharma at the Monk debate, you'll know that I'm not a big fan of Emma Lazarus and that lousy poem of hers that they stapled to the foot of the Statue of Liberty. As I put it on stage, the French gave America a great Statue of Liberty and the Americans turned it into a crappy statue of mass immigration. Uh, So to hell with your huddled masses yearning to breathe free. If you're yearning that badly, throw off your own local tyranny and breathe free at home. Uh, However, that is not the only poem Emma Lazarus wrote. And uh, this one uh, discerns one of the central facts about the year Columbus sailed the ocean blue. 1492 is one of those hinge moments of history because... Uh, From uh, my point of view, it's the border between the Middle Ages and modernity. On the other hand, if you recall the late Osama bin Laden, you'll remember that a couple of weeks after 9-11, he said it was payback for, quote, the tragedy of Andalusia, by which he means the fall of Islamic Spain in 1492 and the expulsion of all Muslims from the Iberian Peninsula. Uh, They weren't the only ones expelled. Uh, The Jews who declined to convert were also kicked out. And thus, for Emma Lazarus, the peculiar contradictions of 1492. As one door closes, another one opens. Thou two-faced year, mother of change and fate, didst weep when Spain cast forth with flaming sword the children of the prophets of the Lord, prince, priest, and people, spurned by zealot hate, hounded from sea to sea, from state to state. The West refused them, and the East abhorred. No anchorage the known world could afford. Close locked was every port, barred every gate. Then smiling... Thou unveilst, O two-faced year, a virgin world, where doors of sunset part, saying, Ho, all who weary, enter here. There falls each ancient barrier that the art of race or creed or rank devised to rear grim bulwarked hatred between heart and heart. Emma Lazarus on 1492, a two-faced year that unveiled a virgin world, saying, All who weary, enter here. Columbus's naysayers, like the uh, latter open borders sentiment, while denying, of course, the first part, that it was a virgin world at all. Mark's mailbox is on the air. Let's get to it. Mark Walbrown, a first week founding member from North Carolina, writes, Greetings, Mark. Finally, someone serious on the airwaves. In December 2019, Australia began negotiations with China to exchange Chinese ren... ren my, my word, this, this word appears so rarely... 
in American newspapers. Uh, I have to think how to pronounce it. Renminbi for Aussie dollars. Through 2020, Vietnam and South Korea began to follow suit trying to avoid US dollars with Jim Crow Joe treating European allies like American parents. Uh, I notice France and Germany dispatching finance ministers to Beijing. I wonder if other countries are fed up enough to pull the reserve currency rug out from under the US. Can you imagine if the hacks at the Politburo on the Potomac had to live within our means? No more trillions here and trillions there, says Mark Walbrand. The first thing you have to remember when you think about this question, I brought it up a decade ago in After America, is that every bit, regardless of how ignorant most American citizens remain about the vulnerability of their currency, you have to understand that everybody else in the chancelleries of the world knows full well about it. That means not just Beijing and Moscow and Tehran, but also Paris and Berlin and Brussels and whoever you want to name. Uh, the vulnerability of the uh, US dollar as global reserve currency, which is all that's holding America up. Now, we've just gone through the usual debt ceiling dinner theater again, where, well, what was uh, that guy, uh, Mitch McConnell's line? Oh, yeah, OK, he agreed to raise the debt ceiling this time, but he's definitely not going to do it again. You know, <laughs> we, we, we talked the other day about the importance of language and debt ceiling is a good example of that, because as a general proposition, one does not raise the ceiling every couple of years. I mean, occasionally you do. Occasionally, you know, you've got like an eight-foot ceiling uh, on your top floor and you think, oh, well, if I remove the ceiling, I could have these big uh, cathedral ceilings following the pitch of the gable and it would make the room seem far more grand and spacious. Yes, you can do that. But <laughs> once you've done that, you're all out of tricks raising the ceiling-wise. So if you, if you have something that gets raised every 20 minutes, it's not a ceiling anymore. So this whole debt ceiling thing is misconceived. But what it tells you, and you can try this with your own congressman, your own senator, if you ever get close enough to meet them, because a lot of them don't like to mix with you riffraff, uh, but if you ever ask them about the United States debt and look in their eyes, you can see that unlike uh, New Zealand and certain other way, or Canada under the uh, 1990s Liberal Party, they have no serious intention of actually paying down the debt. Their, their plan is to just keep raising the debt ceiling in perpetuity. As I said, that's what makes it a defective metaphor for what's going on. Because, you know, even if you live in quite small, uh, lightly zoned towns, you just can't keep raising the ceiling until your roof is 135 feet higher than the neighbours in your suburban cul-de-sac. So that in itself, tells you that these guys are idiots. Now, I think it was the IMF or the World Bank called the other day for a new Bretton Woods. I know a little about Bretton Woods because it was uh, held at the uh, Mount Washington Hotel, which is a stone's throw from me in New Hampshire. But the fact is, if you were holding a new Bretton Woods now, you would no way make America the global currency. America's the dollar's status as global currency 
uh, derives from a set of facts that no longer apply. That doesn't mean the Chinese are suddenly going to be masters of the global currency, but it does mean that both enemies and allies alike would be receptive to a plan to, say, make the dollar merely one of a basket of currencies. And once ideas like that start floating around, uh, the whole, as I said, the whole Weimar with smartphones scenario starts to look a lot more likely. Plus, you have to bet that the plans of uh, the Chinese and certain other parties include the destruction of the U.S. dollar. And so when we see what we see in Washington with this stupid debt ceiling, what you see is that Democrats and Republicans alike are, in fact, uh, doing the work of the Russians and the Chinese and others. Michael Trueblood, a first month founding member from Pennsylvania, says, Mark, what do you think? We're going to do a couple of extra questions this uh, Columbus Day and Canadian Thanksgiving because we had so many good ones at our Q&A and uh, there were a couple I, I didn't get to. What, uh, Michael Trueblood says, what do you think would be the result of China annexing Taiwan? Economically speaking, people who live on the island of Taiwan a 95% Han Chinese, just as are the people who live on the mainland. Maybe instead of 90% of everything being made in China and 5% made in Taiwan, China can then claim to make 95% of everything. Uh, that's true and correct, economically speaking. But again, uh, I think the important thing you've said is the bit about people on the island of Taiwan being 95% Han Chinese, as are the people on the mainland. That counts for a lot. That if it is a conventional ethnostate with over a billion Han Chinese, those people uh, have enough social solidarity to take the side of their own nation. And one of the one of the absolutely demented things that's happened in our world, where we have all this rubbish about, you know, oh, proposition nations, that, that one's attachment to a nation derives uh, from particular documents or from particular ideologies. Enoch Powell and Mrs. Thatcher used to disagree about this. And Enoch uh, used to say to her, well, I, you know, I, I, I'm an Englishman and I would fight for this country if it had a communist government. And we saw that to an extent if you look at the siege of Stalingrad or if you look at the uh, behavior of the locals in, say, uh, Iraq after the American uh, invasion. And the primal connection of having over a billion Han Chinese with none of this rubbish about celebrating diversity and and uh, what matters is uh, being like a Stanley Gibbons stamp collection where you've got at least one of everything. The social solidarity in a conventional ethnostate is a lot stronger. It removes a lot of the, the problems. And actually, that applies to big and small countries too, which is why I'm thrilled to see we have a, uh, a question from Snedsted in Denmark, from Niels 
Tega Riesgaard. I'm not sure about the middle name, Niels. I apologise for that. Hi, Mark. I'm back again in the club now for a full year. Your soft spot for my country and Scandinavia, or more to the point, critically soft spot, drew me back to where I belong. Well, I love Denmark and I, I miss my friends in Denmark. I miss my friends at the Danish Free Press Society and I hope uh, one day to be back with you guys and sooner uh, rather than later. But uh, Niels is back with us, he says, like another prodigal son gone astray. Uh, he wants to talk about the Danish monarchy. Denmark is a constitutional monarchy and the royal family is very popular. But the crown prince couple are going woke. So this would be the equivalent of uh, Charles and Camilla, but I believe they're rather younger than that. So perhaps it's more the equivalent of William and Kate. Uh, but Neil says, in fact, they're getting reminiscent of Harry and Meghan and no one wants that. Lately, they handed down a culture prize to a bunch of daring artists who in 2002 made themselves famous, setting up a big signpost pleading, foreigners, please don't leave us alone with the Danes as their answer to their fellow countrymen. Or what about this one? Rebranding Denmark, an animated burning of our flag, the Danabrog, after the Mohammed cartoons had set Danish embassies ablaze. Our dear crown princess has made herself the protector of pride parades, kicking in open doors under the rainbow flag. They should know better and have better advice. They should be a stone in the stream, not floating down with the spirit of the time. They should be called to order to represent tradition and the flag, i.e. our country. Our alternative media do reprimand them these days. Some people say Eric Bloodaxe rules OK. Ah, the old Viking spirit. Others want a president. What do you think of this modern monarchy? Mark Stein. Well, my whole view, well, actually, I, my view of monarchy is the Queen's view of monarchy, which is that the secret, uh, by which I mean not your Queen, but my Queen, <laughs> uh, the, the, the secret is to uh, the secret to uh, an enduring monarchy is not to go around queening it. Uh, and the whole trick of it, as Queen Elizabeth puts it, uh, the point of a queen is to be, not to do. You, you, are, you are there because you connect the people with something deeper, something rooted. And so tedious modishness of the kind that you're talking about here, Queen Elizabeth's point is central, that the, that the, the point of a queen is to be, not to to do. Anybody in a free society, anybody can do. And it's for others to do those things. And so I worry about modish monarchies. And you you have, I, uh, the, the Queen of Denmark ha is tonally correct in how she behaves. But you know, as well as I do, Niels, next door, that the King of Sweden is not a king in the constitutional sense of the Danish queen or the queen in Canada or wherever. The king of Sweden is not a king in that sense. He's just a figurehead. And uh, because the central virtue of a monarchy, 
Uh, and I had the pleasure of explaining this to Tucker uh, 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 on telly a couple of months back, is that the great advantage of it is it provides something bigger than politics. The thing about uh, an, a huge, big, activist, central government with the leader of that government as the head of state is there's nothing above politics. So I hope your crown prince and crown princess uh, wake up on that point, Niels. And it is great to have you back in the club. One more, one more, because it's a big old holiday. And we have one from Andrew, who's a Calgary member of the Stein Club. Uh, So make sure you stay tuned for our closing song, uh, Andrew. It'll be just for you. And Andrew says, I remember pictures of U.S. senators cowering in terror on the floor of the Senate chamber during the January 6th insurrection. I was disappointed since I've naively presumed that the occupants of the Capitol are made of sterner stuff than a primary school classroom. I'm almost certain there was no cowering on the floor when Japan bombed Pearl Harbor, the Ayatollah invaded the U.S. Embassy, or the Pentagon was attacked on 9-11. Could it be that the leftist media are correct and that the real terrorists are, in fact, naked men in painted faces and Viking helmets. Uh, we're getting back to deals there with old Eric Bloodaxe, although this guy is half as, he's nowhere near as scary as Eric Bloodaxe. I think the point here is, this again goes back to the point about the size of politics. You know, senators have huge entourage. I mean, or if you take Nancy Pelosi, she's far more queenly than the queen. She's far more grand than the queen. Senators are all like that. There's 100 of them in a nation of 330 million. And in my limited contact with them, they actually feel rather uncomfortable when they're uh, among members of the people. They like being in their bubble. I remember once landing at Logan Airport and Ted Kennedy being on the water ferry back over to downtown Boston. And people, some of the other people on the ferry, I mean, I was unnerved by just having him on the ferry because he wasn't in the best of shape. In those days, and it was a small boat, so every time he moved his foot, the boat all wobbled around and waves splashed everywhere. But, uh, but what I noticed was that when people tried to approach him, he was very un- something had gone wrong. That's why he was on the ferry, and he was very uncomfortable being on the ferry. And I saw him some years later at the impeachment trial of Bill Clinton. I've written about this somewhere or other. Uh, he's, he's sitting there at his desk while someone is droning on during the impeachment. And he motions. He's motioning to one of the pages who has to come from the other side of the room because they're running around ferrying their questions for the witness to the chief justice. And so he, he interrupts all that to have a Senate page come over and slightly adjust his footstool two and a half inches. And then the page goes away. And after a moment, Ted Kennedy beckons him back to readjust. He's just slightly moved it, uh, you know, two and a half inches, which is about uh, an eighth of an inch too far. So could he just bring it back slightly in an eighth of an inch? These are people that are just, these are the most pompous politicians in the free world. And And what they loathe about January 6th and why they won't let up about it is because they're supposed to live protected by their entourage and in their bubble. And on January the 6th, for two or three hours, 
the real world broke through the entourage and into the bubble. And that's unforgivable. That's, oh, what is the phrase? Oh, less majesty, less majesty. That's what it is, and that's why those senators are determined. They're determined to teach people the lesson that you don't break through the entourage. Your, your place is on the other side of the entourage. What part of that don't you get? Keep up to date with the past on the 100 Years Ago Show with Mark Stein. A Columbus Day smash for Al Jolson, the birth of a kingdom in Kurdistan, and the end of the world in Utah. It's October 1921. A hundred years from today. Your World News Update. The messy aftermath of the Great War continues. Fascists and socialists are fighting on the streets of Medina in northern Italy. Each believes that they are the likely successors to discredited systems such as monarchy and democracy. In Suleimania, Sheikh Mahmoud Bazanji has proclaimed a new kingdom of Kurdistan with himself as king. His kingdom is, in fact, within the British mandate of Mesopotamia. Sheikh Mahmoud blows hot and cold on the British High Commissioner. This is presumably one of the cold spells. Are you keeping up on all these breakaway republics? Ricardo Zanella has been elected as the first president of the free state of Fiume, which is a buffer state on the Adriatic coast between Italy and the kingdom of Serbs, Croats and Slovenes. Signor Zanella is something of an embodiment of the buffer, having an Italian father and a Slovene mother. It is just six months since Mohamed Taki Pesian proclaimed himself leader of the autonomous state of Khorasan in Persia. He is no longer head of that state, having been surrounded by Kurdish tribesmen who decapitated him and brought his head to Tehran as evidence of his demise. For two months, Hungarian sharpshooters have prevented Austrian officials from taking charge of Burgenland, which, according to whose view you take is either Eastern Austria or Western Hungary. Now the League of Nations has referred the dispute for mediation by Italy. The Treaty of Versailles awarded Shantung province to Japan. The empire's government demanded that China abide by that decision. The government of China has now rejected all Tokyo's demands. Let's all go down the Strand and have a riot, a peaceful march of 10,000 unemployed workers through the streets of London to Hyde Park turned violent when about 3,000 men decided to take a detour uh, and attempted to climb Nelson's Column in Trafalgar Square. The police charged in and rioting broke out. In the United States, William Howard Taft, the 27th president, 
has taken his oath and is now the 10th Chief Justice. He is the first American to hold both offices. A powerful earthquake has struck Elsinore, a town of about 800 in Utah, prompting residents to flee, fearing the end of the world is nigh. Are you ready for the invisible gun? The United States Army has been testing a new type of flashless explosive powder that would make night artillery invisible. It's also testing what it calls the world's greatest gun, which can fire an artillery shell 20 miles. Costa Rica has become the fourth and final country to ratify the treaty, creating the Federation of Central America. That's Costa Rica, Guatemala, Honduras, and El Salvador. Its capital city will be Tegucigalpa. Just days after it made history with the first broadcast of a World Series baseball game, Pittsburgh station KDKA has notched up another first, the first live radio broadcast of an American football game. The University of Pittsburgh Panthers defeated the University of West Virginia Mountaineers 21-13, to and you could hear every thrilling minute right in your parlour. Buster Keaton can do it all by himself. Do you like these special effects in the flickers? If so, you will love Mr. Keaton's new comedy photo play, The Playhouse, in which, using technology he developed himself, he plays multiple different characters in the same shot, including an opening sequence in which Buster attends a variety show in which he plays the conductor and every member of the orchestra, all the actors, all the dancers, all the singers, all the stagehands, and every member of the audience, male and female. In that last role, Buster Keaton turns to the Buster Keaton sitting beside him and remarks, this fellow Keaton seems to be the whole show. Just in time for Columbus Day, here's a new Broadway smash on a Colombian theme whose hit songs are already the toast of New York. Al Jolson, in his trademark blackface, plays a slave of Christopher Columbus and lots of laughs ensue. Columbus may be the big boss, but Jolson the slave gets all the best numbers, including not only April showers, but this. <laughs> Don't cry. The little choo train that takes me 
away from you. No words can tell how bad it makes me. Kiss me, kiss me, goodly, and then. Oh, baby, do it over again. Watch for the nail. I'll never fail. And if you don't get a letter, then you'll know I'm in jail. That, 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 goodly, don't cry. Toot, toot, tootsie, goodbye. Indeed, 33 people have been killed in a rear-end collision between two suburban trains in a tunnel near the Gare Saint-Lazare in Paris. Lieutenant Georges Kersh of the French Army has set a new speed record flying 300 kilometres in one hour and averaging 279 kilometres, about 173 miles per hour over the whole race in winning the Coupe Deutsche de la Meurthe. Wait till you get them up in the air, boys. Wait till you get them up in the air. There is no such place in the annals of aviation for Madeleine Davis, the young stunt flyer was attempting in Long Branch, New Jersey to become the first woman to climb from a moving automobile to a moving airplane flying overhead. Instead, Miss Davis lost her grip on the rope ladder and hit the ground at a speed of about 45 miles per hour. She is dead at the age of 23. Wilhelm II was the last king of Württemberg. He was a popular monarch. He enjoyed walking his dogs in the park with no need for any guards, and he would be greeted by his subjects with an affable Herr König, Mr. King. But he was swept away in the revolution that overthrew all the German monarchs at the end of the war and extinguished his kingdom. Wilhelm II is dead at 73. Earlier this year, John Storey, Premier of New South Wales, arranged the prorogation of Parliament to avoid being overthrown during a six-month absence to see his doctor in Harley Street in London. Despite the warnings of that doctor, he returned to his usual work schedule and is dead of nephritis at the age of 52. The former New York congressman Michael Farley nicked himself with a razor. The cut was infected by a contaminated shaving brush three days later. Mr. Farley is dead at 58. He is believed to be the first man to die of anthrax contracted while shaving. Yulan was the princess consort of Prince Chun of the first rank and mother of the last emperor of China, Puyi, although she did not see much of her son after the age of two when he was taken away to be raised by the palace eunuchs. Emperor Puyi was overthrown in 1912 when he was six years old and briefly restored for a week and a half in 1917 when he was 11. Now his mother is dead at 37 after being publicly reprimanded by the Dowager Empress for her son's misconduct, Yulan committed suicide by swallowing opium. And that's the way of the world, October 1921. A hundred years from today A hundred years from today This is Mark Stein on this week's Song of the Week, one of the all-time great love songs. It came from a flop show, was resurrected a decade later for a flop play, and eventually became the 32 Bars of Glue. 
that hold a great film together. You'll know the music, you'll know all the words, and you'll even know the song cue. We'll tell its story on Stein's Song of the Week, Sunday afternoon at 5.30 on Serenade Radio. And 5.30pm UK time is half past noon on the East Coast, 9.30am on the West Coast. So a Sunday brunchy kind of show in the Americas. Hope you'll join me. Mark Stein's Last Call. This is really a last call for the land of my birth, which is so six foot under its national flag. And that's a Liberal Party flag, Pearson's pennant and all that. The national flag is at permanent half-mast by order of the Government of Canada, which is not the cheeriest position in which to celebrate Thanksgiving. Nevertheless, we had a song for Columbus Day, so here's a song for the deranged Dominion. On Sunday, we played Mark Kenny and his Western gentleman with Mart's song, We're Proud of Canada. Mart Kenny was the grandfather of the current premier of Alberta, Jason Kenney. Jason's a conservative party guy, uh, so to speak. Uh, his grandpa was a Liberal Party supporter, but that's how bad things have gotten, folks. Back then, even Liberals were prepared to write and play and sing a song called We're Proud of Canada. Today, under Justin Trudeau, Liberals are the party that has made shame of Canada its basic public position. Anyway, a lot of people said how much they enjoyed hearing Mark Kenny and his Western gentlemen, so here's another of theirs for every Canadian who has been permitted by his government to engage in interprovincial travel for this Thanksgiving. When I get back to Calgary, don't say no, sir. I'm off to Calgary. Oh, what a time there's gonna be in the Robert Stomp and Stampede Once I get back. To Calgary, you'll have to carry me out of Calgary. You've never seen the likes of me in that rope and slop and stampede town. I left Alberta where the weather is sunny to come down east to make a lot of money. But I can hardly wait to open up the gate out where my honey lives. When I get back to Calgary, gonna marry me back in Calgary. Oh, what a time there's gonna be in the drop and stop and clopping, rope and slop and totin', root and toot and stampede down. Yippee-yay, yippee-yay, Mark Kenny and his Western gentleman with Norma Locke, Mrs. Kenny, and Wally Costa on vocals, and Mrs. Kenny's own song, When I Get Back to Calgary. 
If you've successfully gotten back to Calgary or Moose Jaw or Swift Cohen, Saskatchewan or Louisville, Quebec, enjoy the rest of your Thanksgiving. If you're trapped among the civilizational turncoats in Boston, enjoy Columbus Day north or south of the border. Stay safe, stay free. Now I own a share in an over there. Calgary's the place for me. When we get back. When we get back to good old Calgary, you're gonna marry me out in Calgary. Oh, what a time. Oh, what a time it's gonna be in Calgary. In that rope and stop and poppin', rope and slope and chokin', rootin' doom shootin', rootin' doom snappy town. Yippee-i-yay. Yippee-i-o. Join us next time for another edition of The Mark Stein Show. The Mark Stein Show is a production of Mark Stein Enterprises and Oak Hill Media. All rights reserved.